0: we am be reading from Acts 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Bree. Let's pray before we go forward. Just take a deep breath and acknowledge the church around you, the space we're in, and most of all, the God revealed in Jesus who's present by his spirit to you. Thank you, Jesus. We're sitting with you now, Jesus. Thank you that you're present to your church, not just this church but the church. All over the planet, you've created a family and you're building this family around your son, Jesus. Here we are, committed to your building work. May you speak to us what you want to say. Give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Yeah, good morning, everybody. Yeah, Yeah. welcome. If you're new, welcome to Park Hill. Uh, My name is Evan Wickham, and my wife, Sandy, and I have the true honor of leading this church. And we are starting a new series today on the Book of Acts. All right, a couple couple people are in. That's great. A little, little call and response there. Book of Acts. So this series will occupy most of our 2024 today. The plan is to camp out in the Book of Acts, Journeying through the story of the early church all year, and we're going to pause several times through the year to focus on the practices of Jesus that we see the church doing. So we, the things we focused on for years as a church, what we call our rule of life, um, it's the stuff we see the church doing in Acts. So here's our rule of life. Do you have this? Uh, yeah. So this is kind of how we boil down. What do we mean when we say we follow Jesus. We practice his way. And this is how we try to make it concrete um, so that we don't have to make stuff up. You know, we actually receive this from Jesus and the church. Read scripture, prayer, and fasting. By the way, on fasting, Ash Wednesday's coming. Lent is coming. And we're going to do, as a whole church, uh, we're going to do a digital fast. Yeah, it's going to be great. I cannot wait for that. More on that later. That's just like a little teaser. We're going to start rolling it out next week. But prayer and fasting, um, silence and solitude, Sabbath, generosity in the church, hospitality to people far from God, and then vocation, your job as a kingdom calling rather than a cultural career. And then community, what does it mean to be family? So these are the eight practices that make up our rule of life at Park Hill Church. And the cool thing about the book of Acts is we see the church doing all this stuff. We're not making it up. So that's why we're in Acts for 2024. We'll walk through this book kind of loosely all year long. We're not going to teach every single verse exhaustively as far as it can be unpacked. That would take a decade. Uh, so we're going to focus on the big stuff, skim over some sections. The book of Acts tends to repeat itself with all the travel and all the geography and sometimes. So we're going to, we're going to bob in and out of the, of the weeds of Acts. And just take in the flow of the early church and let it shape our church. We're entering our seventh year as a church, Park Hill. We just celebrated six years. So I, I, I feel like a seventh year is a perfect time to go back to the early church. And we want to listen to them as they listen to Jesus. Because the book of Acts tells us who we are and why we exist as church. We're living in a time of tension and stress and change and we feel this, and during times of change, it's crucial to remind ourselves of what doesn't change. So we're looking to the book of Acts for our identity and mission as God's people in the world. It's who we are and why we're here, and that's not changing because the mission hasn't changed. And that's what this year is all about. So if you have your Bible, like a paper Bible, that's amazing, you're gonna need it all year. Uh, and if you have a, a phone, feel free to flip, up, flip to Acts 1, It's right after the Gospels in the New Testament. We'll have it on the screen as well, just to double down. We'll start with Acts 1, verse 1. You ready? Here we go. You ready? Okay, good, just checking. Here it is. In my former book, Theophilus, stop there. All right. We'll go way faster than this normally, but we're we're, we're going slow for a second. So who's, who's Theophilus? He shows up in the first few words, who's this guy? Some scholars say he might have been an important person, socially, who was also a Christian. His name comes from two Greek words together, God and lover. So God-lover, that's a great name, like lover of God or friend of God. And, And because of that, some have proposed that Theophilus is not supposed to be a historical person, but sort of a made-up name to say, hey, this book is written to anyone who's a God-lover, anyone who seeks to to be with God and be like God, this is for you. This is your family. And so whatever your take is, I think that works. Whatever whatever you take on Theophilus, maybe you're hardcore, he was a real person. Great. Either way, that's great. Uh, Now look at the first part of verse 1. Look at the first part. In my former book, okay, what does that tell you about the book of Acts? It's a sequel! Amazing. So good job. There's a, there's a volume one and Acts is a volume two. Uh, so uh, good news is it's, it's, it's not like Disney where the sequel's worse. Uh, it's, it's just as good as the first one. So what's the first one? The Gospel of Luke. You have it right there in your Bible, two books back. So check out the, here's the beginning of volume one. Here's the beginning of Luke's gospel. You ready? most excellent Theophilus, not only because he sounds like Bill and Ted, but because it's the same name. It's the same recipient as Acts is. So so they're written to this Theophilus person. So from the very beginning of church history, historians, both Christian and non-Christian alike, they look at this literature and they're like, these are totally meant to be one work in two volumes. Written by a guy named Luke, who is a physician Luke was a doctor, uh, and he was also one of Paul's traveling buddies. We're going we're to meet him in his book. He comes up in the story. So in starting Acts this way, just throw up that verse on the screen. In starting his volume two, like this, uh, he's trying to tell us, hey, my two books are connected. You really have to read them together. You kind of have to know what happened in Luke's gospel to understand Acts so, so that verse in, in my former book Theophilus I wrote about all that what Jesus began to do and to teach so those two things so according to Luke right there according to Luke's intro in Acts what was his first volume about Jesus doings and teachings that's how Luke sums up his first one that's really important. We're supposed to keep that in front of our minds as we venture into Acts. He's like, do you remember everything Jesus was all about, you guys? You guys are Jesus people. Do you remember what he was all about? Do you remember everything he did and said? If not, let me jog your memory, he says. And then he writes the next verses. Verses 2 and 3, right here. Till the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles he chose, a suffering, presented himself to them, gave them many convincing proofs he's alive, he appeared to them over 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So, question number one. According to that, what did Jesus do back in the Gospel of Luke? So, in, in Acts 1, he's summing up what Jesus did in Volume 1, which is the Gospel of Luke. So, according to that, what did Jesus do? Any, any shout on anything? What, what kind of stuff did he do? Okay, instructions. Yeah he well like according to these lines he <laughs> suffered yeah so so here's so let me let me underline this really important piece first um have yeah, the next slide there it is first thing i want to point out you can point out a different one but the first one i could point out here he picked a community he built a, a, a community of followers he was recruiting people he's a really good leader He was gathering people and training them and building a community of people around him. And when you read the Gospel of Luke, you find a ton of stuff about Jesus doing this, recruiting, training, retaining, and then sending followers. It's a big part of what Jesus does. Okay, what else happens in Luke? Look at verse 3. Someone already said it. He suffered. All of us should be like, oh, totally. That's like the climax of all four Gospels, not just Luke. The whole passion of the Christ thing. This is what all they all build up to that. Jesus goes to Jerusalem, challenges the religious authorities and gets himself arrested and convicted and nailed to a cross, crucified and buried in a tomb. Okay, what else did Jesus do back in the gospel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He presented, he rose from the dead and presented himself as alive. And and so so Luke, I want to say this. He's a doctor. He's an educated person, Uh, the equivalent of an ancient scientist. Obviously, science the scientific method wasn't around back then, but he's the equivalent of an ancient scientist. He knows what constitutes data and evidence, which is why he uses a very specific technical Greek phrase: "many convincing proofs," because Luke is describing the wealth of evidence to support the central. Christian claim that Jesus of Nazareth did in fact rise from the dead and show himself to the community he built. It's pretty awesome. Okay, what else did you do? I'll just point out one last thing here. Uh, It's that last verse. After he rose, he appeared to them to basically run them through a 40-day seminary. (laughs) I don't know about you, that's awesome to me. When I picture Jesus rising, even though I grew up in the church and I read the Bible all my life, I picture Jesus rising from the dead and then just kind of floating around and then floating away. But he spent 40 days eating with them, re-unpacking re- theology to them to explain how the Old Testament connects to him. 40 days. You got, Can you imagine after he's alive, like your teacher rises from the dead and starts teaching you for 40 days? And you have that privilege of being with him. It's incredible. So, just to sum up, what does Jesus do in the Gospel of Luke, Volume 1? Well, to sum up, he builds a community and he suffers and dies on the cross, rises from the dead and appears to his followers that he built. And then he teaches and trains them. So, this is Luke reminding you what Volume 1 was about, which brings us to question number 2. He said, All Jesus began to do and to teach, you have that next slide. So, what did Jesus teach? We just talked about what Jesus did, but what did he say? What was he about? And the answer, according to Luke, is the kingdom of God. That's the answer. That's Jesus' teaching. The Gospel of Luke has a ton of Jesus' teachings. You could probably think of a parable or a really cool thing he said that really resonates with you or whatever. But if you had to boil everything down that Jesus taught, the phrase has to be the kingdom of God. That phrase, kingdom of God, it shows up in the Gospel of Luke 32 times. Luke and Jesus used that phrase to summarize Jesus' entire body of teaching. So just two really important moments in Luke, I wanna show you. In chapter four of Luke, Jesus says that. I must Proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. So question, why was Jesus sent, according to Jesus, to proclaim the kingdom of God? And, And the second example from Luke 8, it's Luke describing Jesus here. Luke writes, after this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, the 12 were with him, and also women. So Jesus brought his community of women and men around with him as he did what? What, what did he bring them around to show him, to show them how to copy him doing? What, what was he doing? Proclaiming the kingdom. This is the whole thing. This is Jesus' whole, this is the, the core of his mission. So all right, here we go. Today's a Participatory day, if you can't tell. We're in class. We're in class. So time for a pop quiz, okay? Everyone in the room participates. There's a grade. Let's go. You ready? Five words or less. In five words or less, what did Jesus teach while on earth? Kingdom of God. Everybody passed. That's amazing. That's very good. Good job. Someone in the first gathering said, proclaiming the kingdom of God. I'm like, you just made it. So that's great. That works too. So that's important. In order to get what Luke's trying to do, both in volume one, Luke, and in volume two, Acts, it's crucial we wrap our minds around this concept, this concept, the kingdom of God. What is it? We need to know what Jesus meant when he said it, because we are prone to fill our own meanings into things, aren't we? Like, oh, the kingdom, I bet I know what that is. It's all the stuff I like, or whatever. And, and we, but we need to let Jesus define it, and we also need to know how his first hearers heard that phrase, and chances are the kingdom of God isn't what we think it is. If you remember, uh, one of our elders, Erica Mayado, she, she taught last month during Advent on the kingdom of God, and she's like, it's just not what we think it is. Like, we have this allergic reaction to, to like, thinking Christianly like we we like to bend things to feed our own egos but the kingdom is about something else and so why is that a problem why do we have such a hard time us in San Diego in 2024 why do we have a hard time understanding the kingdom Uh, I submit one reason is because we're like how many years since it's been Jesus's 33 years of earthly life how many years has it been like 2,000 like if you actually go by the calendar that we think it is, maybe, he was like 24 walking around on the earth right now 2,000 years ago. It's uh, a long time away. Uh, and, and by the way, we, another reason, we don't live in an empire or a kingdom per se. Uh, they lived, Jesus' day, they lived under the Roman kingdom. Our modern government is, a, we like to think of it as a democratic republic, right? In fact, our American government was formed after we violently revolted against a king so we got rid of a monarchy and now Jesus is preaching about a monarchy so we don't know what to do with that all the time we like we don't like that and and another reason we have to work hard to understand the kingdom of God is because his hearers longed for this thing they were like aching to hear this kingdom message and we're like, well, what does it mean? They were like, I know what it means. They, because they had, they had a certain set of values we don't have. Our culture longs for different things. Where ancient Jewish culture, Jesus' culture, might have valued communal identity and the overthrow of the Roman Empire. But for us, we might value something different, like individual expression, be yourself culture, like the whole you-do-you you thing that is very much normal part of the modern conversation it's in jesus day they literally wanted to overthrow a roman kingdom but today we want to overthrow any authority that tells us we can't be ourselves. we want our own kingdoms and so here's the problem that arises from that we're tempted to hear the kingdom of god and think it just means like maybe the american dream that god wants us to be healthy and wealthy or maybe we hear kingdom of god and we think it just means, hey, it's just, it's just a kingdom of kindness, love, and acceptance. And that perspective is so common. Kindness, love, and acceptance are good things. They're good things. Wonderful. But this is so common today. I've had many conversations about Jesus with people from different worldviews, and I've honestly lost count of how many times I've heard something like, hey, Jesus was, was all about love God, love neighbor. That's all he ever really wanted. Love God, love neighbor. So didn't he just, he just wants pure love and acceptance just to fill the world. Everyone just has their truth and it's everyone's job just to love and accept. And and, which honestly, there's good stuff in that. There's some good in that. But the question we have to ask is, is this what Jesus meant by the kingdom of God or is this just what we want it to mean? This is how we must come to everything God says. Am I hearing what I want? Am I making it what I want it to say? Or am I hearing what God means by it? So if we want to have a sense of what Jesus actually taught and what's happening in Luke and Acts, we need to get our ideas about the kingdom from Jesus. So let's start with what the kingdom is not. Uh, what, What is the kingdom of God not? Number one, this is common, this is common. Common misunderstanding. The kingdom of God is not about where we go when we die. The kingdom of God is not about the afterlife. It's not some future heaven thing somewhere else. Like Jesus didn't come to teach us what our eternal destination was. As awesome as that conversation is, it's actually an awesome conversation and important but separate from the kingdom of God. And number two, the kingdom of God is not about just generally good ideas and morals and ethics. In other words, the kingdom of God is not a code for kindness in general or even justice in general. As great as those things are, those are nice and important things but incomplete pictures of the whole kingdom of God. So now what is it? What is the kingdom of God? Well, we have to first ask, what is a kingdom? I think we can get there this way. What's a kingdom? What's the first thing? You need for a kingdom, a king. Amazing. <laughs> Pretty basic to, to a kingdom. You need there has to be one. There has to be one king who has power and authority, or there has to be a decider in chief. Someone whose will has the buck stops there. Otherwise, it's not a kingdom. And secondly, there has to be a realm where the king rules. So this is a space issue, isn't it? It's the space where the king's power and authority get carried out. And who do they get carried out by? You get to number three ingredient of a kingdom, which is the subjects. So these are the people in the specific realm that obey a specific king and not another one by pledging allegiance with their life. So that's what kingdom is about. And basically, I don't think I even necessarily told you anything you didn't know just now but it's just not how we think we don't think that way we don't approach God in this framework but this is just the water they swam in back then and so it's important to swim in it a little bit as much as we can so uh so okay that's a kingdom but what is the kingdom of God you can just plug in God for king God's the king he's the decider in chief And his kingdom is the space where he's acknowledged rightfully. You're the king and not any of the subjects are kings and queens. Only you are. And and, and the subjects are the people who say that. (laughs) Who actually say that. Obey and pledge allegiance. They don't just say it and then live their own way. Like, yes, you're the king as I try to fire at your castle. No, they actually say he's king and obey the king because there's a certain, like, loyal trust that's at play in a kingdom. So, so so I'm getting somewhere here. Why is, here's the next question. This all flows into another question. Why was Jesus obsessed with this? He could have taught about anything, like how to feed the poor more specifically or how, how to... I don't know, you name it. He could have said a, a lot of other things a lot more. But he said this the most. Why? Why did, why did Jesus teach the kingdom of God? And I, I think mainly it's because he knew his audience. His audience was longing for this thing. Because they knew the Old Testament. They lived in the Old Testament scriptures. And they knew what it said in the Old Testament. How does it start? In the beginning... Is God and the heavens and the earth are this space where his will is carried out you have the king you have a realm and then you have subjects he's like I love my new subjects be fruitful and multiply my kids go fill the earth with my brand of truth and beauty and goodness with me I love what N.T. Wright says about Adam and Eve they were created as his family of vice regents to co-reign not just be subjects not just take orders but to co-create and conspire to build his kingdom together. Beautiful uh, collaboration was happening in Eden. But what happened? Uh, God's subjects, who were actually ruling with God for a while, they decide they want to secede from the kingdom, right? And start defining good and evil on their own. They don't want to recognize God as king anymore. And the result of that separation has been catastrophic. Why? Because without the maker as our king, we become unmade. Without the sustainer in charge, we fall apart. And everything becomes racked with sin as we all begin to fight over what is good and what is evil. And and death invades and violence and injustice, racism, slavery, genocide. It just emerges out of the cracks in the foundation that we created on our own, apart from God. And the list goes on of catastrophic effects. Without God as king, we become broken people in a broken world. And and I think it, it's helpful to acknowledge this. This is the point of Lent. Our world is broken. I feel the, the streaks and the cracks in my own soul, the inconsistencies and lack of integrity when I say I wanna do things and then I do a different thing. When I preach one thing, I feel this way too much than I'd like to admit. As a preacher, like I'll preach a principle and then I'll be like, why don't I live into that? Within 48 hours or 24 or four. I, the world is broken, I am broken. Our world is in rebellion against the king, the true king. So when we get that, this is what Lent is supposed to do. when It's a time of mourning, by the way, over the brokenness. If you, didn't, if you don't know about Lent, it's, it's a set-aside time for, for mourning and sorrow over how broken we are and the world is. When we get that, the next question is like, always, how long, O oh Lord? When are you gonna do something about it all? When are you gonna step in? When are you gonna fix me? Like, not just out there. I see in me. I need healing. So, like, when? What do you want, God? Don't you wanna f- fix and heal? So that's ultimately the next question. We see the brokenness, we're like, well, what does God want? And I think it's pretty obvious what He wants. <laughs> God wants to reestablish his reign and power over the world. He wants to take back what's already rightfully his. Why does he want that? For the same reason you want it. For the same reason you want it. This is why. When God's power is reestablished in the world, light pierces darkness. Sins are forgiven. Bodies and minds are healed. Depression starts to lose its grip. Lonely people find belonging, greed gives way to equality, pride turns into humility, enemies become family, demons run, and death reverses into resurrection. That's what happens when God takes back what's rightfully his, and the kingdom of God breaks in. And this is what we long for. This is what every human heart longs for, even if they don't know why. And this is what God wants all through the story of the Bible. This is the main conflict of the Bible. God wants his family and his world back. And this is where Luke-Acts comes in. The Gospel of Luke opens the story about this Jewish man named Yeshua from this podunk town of Nazareth in the armpit of the Roman Empire. And it turns out this man is God entering our world God has entered our world and when he entered our world he became crowned king with a crown of thorns and he's lifted up on his throne by way of a cross of wood and nails you know you see instead of conquering earth through violence forcing people to obey him instead of defeating his enemies in battle God enters our world and dies for his enemies So that all of us rebels can be reconciled to God and each other and find forgiveness of our sin and see hope beyond the cracks in our own character because of His work on the cross. You guys, it's good news. God's rebel subjects are welcome back into the kingdom. He didn't just execute all the ones that seceded, He gives reconciliation potential to everyone. Everyone is welcome. To receive forgiveness of sin by pledging allegiance to this crucified king. You see, this is how the cross inaugurates the kingdom of God in the world. This is how the cross is the entry point for the kingdom of God to fill the world again, just like it did in the beginning. And now, through the cross, all people are invited to share in the life of Jesus by pledging allegiance to Jesus as king of God's kingdom. So ever since the events of Luke, that's the events of Luke. Jesus is what he did and what he taught. Ever since then, the kingdom has been invading our world. It's not just this afterlife thing, kingdom of God, afterlife. No, it is not just a bunch of teachings on what's just and what's moral. The kingdom of God has arrived in a person. Jesus. And now in the book of Acts, Jesus takes off, which they're somewhat not really knowing how to deal with. Um, they're, they're like he, why did he leave we want him we want more Jesus and, and now his people but then his people are empowered by his spirit the same spirit that rose him from the dead now comes upon his followers that Jesus built and they're sent on a mission into the rest of the world and that mission is to keep becoming agents of God's kingdom keep multiplying more kingdom agents and keep becoming more like the king as you do That's why uh, the next verses say what they do. Look at Acts 4 through 8 here. On one occasion, when he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, we're not going to get into verse 6 and 7. It's kind of a rabbit trail. uh, And besides, the disciples asked the wrong question. They kind of derailed Jesus' point anyways. uh, Because they're like... Oh, Jesus is like, I'm going to give you the spirit. We're going to give you a gift. I'm calling you to wait on my spirit. And they're like, when are you going to make Israel great again? And, and Jesus is like, uh, so that's not necessarily what I want you to know now. But let's get back to the Holy Spirit filling you, not just for Israel, but for every nation. The kingdom is going to fill you for ministry in every nation. So, so when you look at the, so let's back up from there. When you look at the main point here, you see that it contains a central concept to the whole book of Acts. Like the core of the book of Acts is in these verses. Um, It's this, the people of God, the church, are people empowered by God's spirit, on God's mission to expand God's kingdom in the world now, not later, now. So so just to make this crystal clear, let's put verse 4 and 8 on the screen, just to see Jesus' own mouth, to hear him speak. So he says here, don't leave Jerusalem. Why can't they wait? Why can't they leave Jerusalem? Why do they have to stay? To wait for a gift. What gift? Glad you asked. Glad you're answering. That's amazing. You guys are on it. Verse 8, you'll receive power. The gift is of the Holy Spirit. So what does the Spirit bring? I just said it. Power. Power to do what? In Jesus' words, to be my witnesses. So this, Jesus makes crystal clear this simple idea, and it's this. The Holy Spirit gives God's people the ability to accomplish God's mission. You need the Holy Spirit. No ifs, ands, or buts. You need the Holy Spirit. You can do a lot of good things, but none of them will be accomplishing God's mission without the Holy Spirit. Another way of saying this is people love the kingdom of God. People love the perks. You know, reconciliation, justice, equity, peace, kindness. But in our day and age, it is not hard to find a love for the kingdom While resisting the king. We want the kingdom, we want the perks without the person. We want the kingdom without the king, but you can't have it. He's the he is the source of the kingdom. Without the maker, we're unmade. Without the sustainer, we fall apart. There is no kingdom without Jesus. And there is no mission, there's no kingdom mission without the Spirit as great as our ideas are we can cheer on great jesus-looking things but don't confuse jesus-looking things by those who don't know jesus with the mission of god hopefully that makes sense the bible says a lot of amazing things about the holy spirit but if you want to boil it down to one line this would be it the holy spirit gives god's people the ability to accomplish god's mission and according to Jesus, what's the mission? To be my witnesses. Yeah. That's how God's kingdom invades your spaces through you today. But you proclaim everything Jesus does and teaches. In other words, we as a church, as we proclaim the life, death, resurrection, and current reign of Jesus as King of the new kingdom of God on earth, and we invite people to obey him and pledge allegiance to him. The kingdom expands, and that's your mission. This is your mission. And, and, and immediately, I, th- I think, I don't know about you, this is where I could kind of get overwhelmed a little bit. Like where, where, I don't know if you're like me, I'm not, m- I'm not the best planner. Sandy is like the ultimate consummate planner brain. She can see all the points in her head and time together. So I'm like, tell, just tell me, just give me a scope of work. <laughs> like I just need to know when I'm done. And, and when I've done all the things you're expecting me to. Like those kinds of moments, I, I find myself in that spot. So if you're like me at all, um, if it, Jesus, when will, it, when will we be completed? He actually tells you. We get a time frame on the mission. Check out the last three verses of the text. This is, a, this is the last part of our text today. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. So Jesus leaves. He leaves. He ascends into heaven. But make no mistake, it doesn't mean he's gone. Jesus is very much still present in the world. If you read further in the New Testament, Jesus, Jesus, not the Holy Spirit, Jesus appears to Paul later. Jesus appears to John on the island of Patmos and gives him the book of Revelation. So Jesus, basically Jesus can do whatever the heck he wants. He can like show up or do whatever he wants. Uh, He's still very much present. Um, So what's the, the ascension all about? What is this ascension of Jesus? It is not... An ascension away from the world, but an ascension toward the throne of heaven. So, this is Jesus becoming the rightful king as the kingdom breaks into earth. He's not going anywhere. Jesus is not going anywhere. From this moment on, Jesus is actually ruling as king of God's kingdom on earth now. But from the disciples' perspective, he's gone. You know, they're like, we would have loved some more, another 40 day course or something. Uh, but they don't get to walk around with them and have fish or whatever. Instead, what they have, what they do see is what? Two men dressed in white. And uh, now Luke calls them men, but it's clear Luke wants us to understand them as something other than just humans. He wants us to know they're angels or divine messengers of some kind. And so what, what's the message? These two angelic beings, they show up. What's the message they bring? Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. I don't know how that hits you right now. For me, this never ceases to catch me. I know this is the whole point of the New Testament is not to be caught off guard by this. But it never ceases to surprise me a little bit. Maybe that's why Paul loves calling the churches he wrote letters to, he loves calling those churches sleepers. Awake, you sleepers. Rise to the light that is shining on you. The physical Jewish human man, Jesus, is coming back to the planet the same way they saw him go. I just don't think of that every day. I just don't think about that every day. It feels pretty significant. Like I should be thinking of that all the time. It should be governing my, act, my actions, my choices, the way I view my scope of work, the way I... And he's coming back with pure goodness and a, an absolute plan to eliminate all oppression and heal my soul and reward those who diligently seek him there's so much he's bringing physically and I think of it like once a month or less. And it's something I confess as a Christian along with billions of others. What is my problem? Do you share this problem with me? Jesus is coming back. This is not just a metaphor for the church is going to grow. This is not just a metaphor for the gospel is going to go far. Far. Jesus will physically, bodily return to earth. If you confess a physical resurrection, then you also are part of a community that has lived and died, rooted in the hope that his physical body that came out of the tomb will also somehow appear in such a way that the whole earth will be able to see, respond, and confess that he's king with no mistakes made. How does this govern your approach to being a Christian? (laughs) Mine, I confess, it doesn't enough. It just, it's kind of miserable how much I don't think about the physical return of Christ as part of my confession and practice. Might be part of our post-enlightenment kind of modernist. We just kind of, it's a nice idea. We just extract ideas and put them out there and debate them. No, this this is a body with flesh and blood. moving back into our space with full authority to rid the world of everything opposed to him and it's actually the best news you can imagine because you're opposed to those things too when you really think about it so so jesus coming back and with that the final piece of the story falls into place the final piece and acts begins remember it begins reminding you jesus raised a community he taught them then he suffered he died he rose And then he appeared, and then he promised a gift of power in in the Spirit for everyone who follows him. And now we're realizing the mission's temporary. The mission is temporary. Because Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he's bringing the fullness of the kingdom, and this world will belong fully to the kingdom of God once and for all. So, where does that put us? That puts us in this We call it the messy middle, don't we? It's the messy middle between Jesus leaving and between his return. We're in this very particular period where the kingdom of God coexists with the kingdoms of the world. The dominion of light and the dominion of darkness are just swirling around each other and we're in the messy middle and so we have a graphic we've used in the past it's very helpful and I would love to share it with you so that's the present age the dominions of darkness you guys we brought that about when we decided to secede from God's kingdom and define good and evil our own way and now the world is broken fallen out of steps Sin, Satan death are all reigning but the kingdom of God is something else this is how that Jesus viewed the world this is how the ancient Jews viewed the world present age age to come In other words, dominion of darkness, kingdom of light. Jesus called that second circle the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, and Jesus is bringing it. Now, next slide. Here's Jesus' (coughs) first coming. He's born of Mary, comes out of Mary's womb, and out of Mary's womb is birthed an entire age where healing will happen and oppression will cease and all the stuff that was broken will be healed. And look at the second coming of Christ. That's when the present evil age is once and for all. Just stick a fork in it. It's gone. 100%. Jesus returns. And then look at the middle. This is where we are. Theologians call it the now not yet kingdom because it's both. Have you ever wondered why you pray for healing and it happens sometimes? And then you pray for healing and they die next week. It's just a miserable, kind of frustrating reality we're living. Why? Or, you know, there's, there's resurrection and there's death. There's light and darkness. There's, you pray for, Lord, heal me of this depression, and it gets worse. And then there's plenty of stories where God actually heals the minds of people who call upon him. Why this messy middle space? Well, it's because the present evil age is still present. And the kingdom of God has broken in for the last 2,000 years. Here's the catch. You have to believe Jesus when he says the dark age is fading and the kingdom of God is growing. Now, now, uh, when you look at the news or you listen to politicians talk and you see people fighting online, it's hard to believe that the dark age is fading. But according to Jesus, it absolutely is, and the kingdom of God is growing. It's actually a lot easier to believe this when you realize, oh, our Western and elite modern American spaces are actually the vast minority of what the kingdom's up to in the world. You look at the demographic in this room, and if you take a general average, that's not the demographic of the majority of the kingdom of God. The average kingdom person in the world is most likely a 23-year-old brown girl who doesn't speak English and lives in a majority world context and has has never seen your Instagram feed and, and will never listen to Park Hill's podcast and is bursting with Pentecostal fire and evangelistic hope for her village town, for her space, and bringing the presence of Jesus into her space wherever she is and fighting like the demonic, the demonic forces are running from this girl. Th- that is the, the, that is the gra- center of gravity of the kingdom right now. We, we like to talk about, or we like to think about, maybe we don't like to think about, it, but we always do, the decline of evangelicalism in the West, the deconstruction movement and all of that. Yes, that's true. In our niche bubble. In our little bubble, absolutely. In American evangelicalism, there is a decline. But do you know how small that bubble is? <laughs> compared to the billions and billions in the kingdom of God, where it's exploding. You know where the kingdom of God is exploding? The fastest is currently in the country of Iran, where there are mostly women leading the church in response to appearances of Jesus in their dreams against all the persecution that is against them. They're still furthering the church and it's growing like wildfire. These are the places the kingdom is growing. So, When you realize what's actually happening, you take in the big picture. Oh, Jesus is right. He's been right all along. The present age is losing its grip. And the kingdom of God is advancing. That's why the two angels say to the disciples, why are you just standing there? (laughs) Staring at the sky, looking at your calendars and timelines trying to calculate the end times or whatever. Don't look up there. Look down here. It's time to open your eyes to the world that God has you on mission to. You know Jesus is coming back. You don't know when. Stop staring and look down here. Why? Because you're on a mission. You have a job to do, and that job isn't up in the sky. It's right in your home. It's right there in your classroom. It's right there in your workplace. It's right there in your neighborhood. It's right there in the people immediately closest to you. You are advancing God's kingdom of healing toward them as you live like Jesus by the Spirit towards them. And I'll look around the room, you guys. 2,000 years later, 7,600 miles the, the way an airplane flies from Jerusalem. I Googled it last night. We're so far from Jerusalem. And yet Park Hill Church is a direct result of what happened in this passage. As we're going to see next week in Acts 2, those first Christians did wait in Jerusalem. And then they did receive the Spirit. And then the kingdom of God has been growing since that day all the way to here. And now every day you live as a Jesus follower, you are a direct continuation of the story of the book of Acts. Which means what Jesus says to his disciples, he says to you. You are a person and we are a community empowered for God's mission. That's our identity. In this time of change, through all our personal struggles and unclarity, there's a lot of unclarity. I feel that. I'm like 42 and I'm feeling, oh, this might be what a midlife crisis feels like. I don't know what my second half of life is gonna be. You know, just, I'm there's a little bit of spin out there. In all of that unclarity, this is something we can be certain about you're a child of God empowered for mission I'm preaching to myself now and those of you who know me intimately know that I am you're a child of God empowered for his mission wherever you find yourself whatever tools are in your hand whatever education you have up to this point doesn't matter you are equally called on to God's mission empowered and ready as you, live on, as you live out God's character and you proclaim that Jesus is king through your life, the kingdom of God invades the world through you. This cannot be taken from you. This mission can't be taken. So today I want to leave us with three simple questions to take with us into communion and into this week and maybe the year. Just take a picture of these maybe with your phone. They're really good to think about. Talk about it with your community or whatever. I just want to leave you with this. Do you understand God's kingdom mission? I mean, I gave you a crash course today, like a one-stop crash course. But are there any gaps in your understanding? You're like, I still don't understand, like, the Satan part, like the serpent in the garden. Or I don't understand judgment, God's Like, you have big questions. That's great. Verbalize those questions in the church. Do you understand God's kingdom mission? And then number two is a big one. Have you accepted the mission? To be a disciple or Christian is to be someone who's accepted the mission. I'll put it a different way. Uh, Think about a mission or, you know, Mission Impossible or something. You know, the Tom Cruise. This is your mission should you choose to accept it. And then they go on to describe the mission, right? People on a mission know that they are on a mission. So have you accepted it? You can accept it today. Everything I've just said can become true about you as a child of God through going, oh my gosh, I'm not the center, and I know I'm saying this bluntly, but I'm not the center of my kingdom. I'm not the center of the universe. Christ is the center of reality. And all who pledge allegiance to him with their lives further this kingdom of goodness based on him? I'm invited to be part of that. I was created to be part of it. We've all separated from it. I'm invited to be reconciled. Have you accepted the mission? And then number three, very practically, where is the mission among the current priorities of your life? A lot of us know that verse just cuz it's a famous Christian verse but think about it after everything I've said today Matthew 6:33 Seek first the kingdom of God and all the things will be added to you I'll ask this way What are some missions you have We all have plans That's good That's awesome should. Uh, well, where does God's mission rank among them? Maybe it's woven throughout. It's beautiful. Maybe you don't know. It's beautiful to acknowledge that. Whatever it is, right now there's no shame in just acknowledging our responses to these questions. I don't know that I've accepted the mission of Jesus. May, I mean, if Jesus is the king... Maybe it's as simple as saying, oh, I admit that there are whole sections of my life that I haven't figured out how to bring under his authority. And that's a beautiful thing to acknowledge as well. Maybe how you steward your money or your sex or your influence in the world, your, your, your self-perception, like all these things, the big three, sex, money, power, they always tend to get us. And so what, what about those three things is yet to be brought fully into the kingdom of God. Because remember, uh, the kingdom of God is the best news we could ever imagine. It's a kingdom of healing and wholeness and flourishing. But we can't have the kingdom without the king. So uh, with this, I would love to invite us just to kind of live in those questions. And uh, I'm going to pray for you. And if there's some way you feel like responding to those questions that maybe might involve prayer, we're here for you. We'd love to pray for you.